There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swallowed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Climactic. The people's voice on climate change. Hello, Ooh, Mark. Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. Sorry, mate. I've always wanted to say that part, though. Oh, you're very welcome, Rich. That's absolutely fine. You take that line, and I won't mention the New Zealand-Australia rugby test this week. Oh. (laughs) You're all heart, mate. All heart. And now, Mark, before we get into a fascinating discussion with Nick Carter, organiser of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, that's AYCC, I understand you've had a big weekend. Ooh, I have. I had a huge weekend. I was up at a tree planting event in northeastern Victoria. It was my mm-hmm. first time at like an organized, uh, you know, put on by an environmental group tree planting. Yeah. So it was it was an amazing weekend, and and I'm about half recovered as we are recording on Monday morning. Yeah. It was with a group that's been running for over 23 years, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. They've got an amazing story to the history of their group. The group is called the Regent Honey Eater Project, and there's some great photos from the weekend if you'd like to check it out on our Facebook and Instagram accounts. Just before we we go on, uh, Mark, the Regent Honey Eater Project, now obviously that's to create habitat for the Regent Honey Eater, is that right? It is, yes, and there will be a lot more information about that particular species, but um, Mm. it's... So the Regent Honey Eater is kind of the, the poster species for this group, but they are yeah. creating habitat, of course, for, for a whole swath of, of native species and, and birds, but not just birds. But the, uh, the Regent Honey Eater is actually one of the most critically endangered species in Australia. So uh, right. it did feel very, very urgent to be doing that work, mm. and uh, it really did power us through the weekend. And I believe listeners will be hearing more about the weekend in a narrative show that you're putting together. Yeah, yeah, I am. I had such an amazing experience out there this weekend. I really wanted to share it with you guys in a, in a cool way. Mm. And our traditional format of interviews just wasn't really going to work on the weekend because yep. all the time I would have spent talking to people meant less time planting, and that mm. just wasn't going to happen. So instead of that, I did take some sort of sound footage from the weekend. I did manage some chats with Andy, the leader of the group, and some of the other mm. volunteers, mm. but mainly I'll be telling kind of a story about the weekend and weaving those in. So it'll be something different and hopefully something pretty cool as well. well I'm looking forward to it. Okay, Mark and I will be back after this interview with Nick Carter to wrap it all up. I am back at the studio at the library at the dock, speaking with Nick Carter. Hello. <laughs> now, Nick, uh, you've just flown in from northern Queensland, and I'm really curious to know what kind of work you're doing, uh, what you get out of it, how you do what you do, and what it is you do. But first of all, I- I've only talked to you briefly on the phone before this, and now we've just sort of met in person mm. the first time. Uh, it was actually through a mutual acquaintance of both of ours, Dion McCurdy up in Brisbane, who made this introduction. So now I'm actually face-to-face with you. I want to acknowledge that Dion set this up, and thank you very much for that, Dion. Cheers, Dion. Well, don't thank him just yet. We'll see if it's any good <laughs> first. So, Nick, what do you do? Thanks for having me on here, Mark. I'm an organizer. I'm an organizer with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. So that means I 
work with a lot of awesome volunteers who are all young people and who are really passionate about doing something meaningful to stop climate change and to uh, fight for what we call climate justice as well. And so that's really critical to the work we do and something that we're really you know, really keen to educate other young people about and to bring them on board with it. So I'm sure I'll get a chance to talk a little bit about that over this conversation. Definitely you will. It's just time for the obligatory joke, of course, Nick, that you're an organizer, meaning you're very organized. Is that, is that the mean, joke? Well, it means that we're, we're starting this about an hour and 15 minutes after the scheduled time. But hey, these things happen. <laughs> yeah, organizers just have to roll with it, you know, and <laughs> keep it all together despite tidiness. That's, that's the true test. I understand it can be very stressful work. Would that, would that be fair to say that an organizing role is quite stressful at times? Yeah, I think so. Yep, yep, <laughs> it yep. is. Uh, I guess I need to qualify that a, l- a little bit. You know, when you're working with volunteers, people are giving you their time, giving you their energy, and you can't pay them for that, but they give so much. So you have to give in a lot of other ways. And so there's there's a lot of deep relationship building that goes on with being an organizer and a lot of emotional work that goes into that. And Usually when you're, when you're doing organizing work, it's for a, a cause that's very important to you as well. And so it always feels like there's a lot that is riding on the work that you do. You know, you've got all of these people who are, are giving up so much to work on this cause alongside you and this cause, which means so much to you. So you really don't want to stuff it up. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So with being an organizer and, and having that kind of deep relationship with the volunteers, is there ever times where there's a, a not a great fit or a mismatch between the volunteers working and the organizer? And is that sustainable long term if there isn't that connection? Honestly, I think that the people who come to volunteer on something like climate change uh, – there is always that level of connection, uh, and that's the most fundamental thing, that you're both here for for the same reason in that you want to do something meaningful. And there can be disagreements that come out of that, of course, when people have different ideas of how you should go about doing it. And that's fine as well, because there are different organizations and different groups which come at climate change from different angles. And so if there is a mismatch there, it's really beneficial to help a volunteer find what is their best fit and work doing the kind of work that they feel is most impactful. And if you're talking about like personality clashes or anything like that, in my experience, it's always been the mission and the work that comes first. And because you do have that deep fundamental connection, I find like you can move forwards past a lot of uh, any of those other other more personalized discrepancies you might have with a person. So you're spending a lot of time together and you you forge strong bonds through that. So yeah, I think it's a challenge that can be overcome. That's really good. And that is good that you know volunteers end of the day are getting good returns on their time and they are being effective, which mm. is so important for their own longevity in that that fight and that cause. Because yeah, if, if you're volunteering your time and you feel like it's not going towards a success or, mm. or being productive, then yeah, that mm. must be hugely demotivating. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by the fit between volunteers and the culture of the group they're working towards. Like it's that that kind of cultural and passion and and sort of skills fit. Because I'm quite new to the space, and I'm mm. always curious. Like looking around Melbourne, I, I didn't realize how many groups there were and how much good work was going on. Been always kind of curious for myself if I was to go and volunteer somewhere. 
how would I know where I best fit? Mm, so mm. kind of curious with what you're saying about being a good fit between the volunteer and the organizer, the good fit between the volunteer and the organization, which would you say is maybe more important between the the group fit to the volunteer or the organizer fit to the volunteer? Uh, let me think about that. I, I'm pretty naive to this space. I'm quite new to it as well. And so That's there's right. a lot we're, that we're I'm both learning. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I myself, I haven't had a huge amount of experience with different organizations or with different organizers, but I feel like if you're organizing for a group, you as an organizer are going to have a close fit with what that group is aiming to achieve. So the fit for between a volunteer and an organizer's mission and a volunteer and the group's mission, they should be the same. If not, then I think the person organizing needs to have a look at whether they're fitting into that group as best they can, because you, you know, you should be making sure and working towards your volunteers feeling like that they are part of this broader mission that the group has come together for. Because as you've said, there are so many groups. And I was kind of curious about that exact thing that you said very well, that the organizer and the group should have a very strong overlap in, in ideals and goals. So the reason why I kind of asked that was to maybe kind of prime the pump for you to talk about the group you organize for, mm. kind of how you got involved with them and, and what their ideals are and maybe... Is there any daylight between them? You know, people aren't groups. People have kind of different ideals and not values, but different priorities. I mean, mm. you've got a life to live, whereas mm. an organization, 24-7, 365 is just that group. Mm. It's just that set of values. Mm. So you're an organizer with AYCC, right? Mm -hmm. Australian you, Youth Climate Coalition, yeah. Perfect. I, I hate jargon and I hate acronyms myself, so I was going to ask you to, to please tell us what that is, <laughs> and you've done it already. So can you tell us more about the Australian Youth Climate Coalition? Yeah, sure. Also, I just want to backtrack a little bit and then I'll come back yeah, to it. Yeah, feel free. I also think that organizations and organizers should learn from the volunteers that they're working with as well. And I don't think that an organizing role should be, you know, top-down directive. And I think that good organizers and good organizations work with their volunteers and what yet their volunteers want and adapt based on that as well. So it should be a fluid relationship, not just a like, you know, this is us, this is our mission, fit in with it or get out. But if you want the same thing and people have slightly different views of achieving that, then, you know, within reason, taking those things on board and listening to volunteers because they're the ones who get the work done mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And if they're working for you and they think things should be going in a certain direction, think that an organization should be taking that on board. That's very smart. I mean, it's, it's not exactly a radical idea, is it, to say that people work harder at things they want to do. No. So if you let them do what they want to do, then you'll probably get a good result. Yeah. And of course, it's got to fit with the broader mission. You've got to be working towards something and there's got to be agreement for that. But, you know, there's there's a gray area there where, where you can feed back. And I think what is a radical idea for some people is this idea that you, you have to listen to the people who are working for you, you know, that's new to a lot of people, especially people working for like big companies and that kind of thing. So it's a really important part of being a volunteer run organization because, yeah, they they do a lot for us. So the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, uh, we're about 11 years old now. And Aww. yeah, that's a yeah, lot of candles on your birthday cake. <laughs> Entering into our um, moody, moody early teenage years, going through an emo phase. Um, I think that suits the world situation right now. I think that's what we need. A very feel, angsty emo organization. Yeah, feeling bleak. No, no. We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all the Smiths all day, every day. <laughs> Dust off the AFI albums. Um, so 
what's really important about Australian Youth Climate Coalition is everybody who volunteers or works for the organisation is under the age of 30, uh, because for us, it's really important that a group representing young people is run by young people and has decision-making power resting with young people. And the reason we have set it up that way is because young people, as, as a group on the planet, have the most to lose from the impacts of climate change. We are the ones who will grow up and raise our families in a warming world. And AYCC believes that those with the most at stake should be leading solutions and and feeding into how we fix the problem. And that includes young people, but that includes a lot of other affected populations around the world, First Nations populations, people from countries who are at risk of losing their land, like low-lying Pacific Island nations, people who are on the front lines of the fossil fuel industry and where it's actually the, the extraction of these carbon sources that are warming our planet, like those people, they've got the most to lose from climate change and therefore they have the most to gain by fixing climate change in, you know, in a fair and just way. And that's where our mission of climate justice comes into it. We are very, you know, very privileged and happy to be able to say we're, we're there to represent young people in Australia in this fight. But to represent young people, you have to be drawing your ranks from those young people and sort of led by young people to have authenticity and mm. to have an understanding of that viewpoint. So it's kind of interesting, you know, just to throw in an old movie quote, you're like, you're, you're Logan's run of organizations. You like every volunteer has a, an expiry date. There's nobody over the age of 30 and you're you're out. The never, never land of you know, the lost boys of climate change. action. That's really cool. So how has that kind of you know, like worked over time? I know you're quite new to the, the group, you said, but that must be kind of interesting with every year you're dealing with people sort of aging out mm, and sort of mm. losing their direct impact and input into the group. Yeah. And, you know, ideally what will happen is that through – a person's involvement in AYCC, they will enter into the broader environment movement or progressive movement or climate movement and find, through their, their work with us, find what they feel is the best fit for them with those other organisations. So it serves as a gateway for a lot of people, especially people coming out of high school or people in high school, and it allows them to explore what some of the other options are. And even if that means that working on the climate movement isn't the thing that makes them feel most empowered, that's okay as well because they're able to find, you know, something useful that they can do in society. It is a real challenge at times because with this this rate of turnover, we lose a lot of knowledge, a lot of institutional knowledge. So as an organization, we recognize that and we we really want to prioritize training and teaching the people that are coming in and trying to share the knowledge and share the skill set from those who have been there for a little bit longer so that we're passing on those skills to, you know, successive younger people from Gen Y to Gen Z. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that sometimes that's hard to do. It's hard to keep on top of because there's so much going on and you, you may not ever get time to write down all the things that you know, and then you might be gone. It is something that we really want to be placing a big focus on. And so a, a, a large part of what AYCC does every year is a training program with our leaders and teaching our leaders to to train other young people that join in their respective groups, because we've got groups all over the country. Yep, that's fantastic. Mm. And sorry, this is the obligatory thing you'll get from any podcaster anywhere. 
and because I'm one of them as well. Sounds like you guys need a podcast. <laughs> like help with that knowledge capture and, and oh yeah, look, there is one in the works. Hey, uh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a very creative creative director who who's got his fingers in many pies, and and podcast has been on the back burner for him for a while. Well, so. There we go. I'd like to talk to him. <laughs> Sounds like he needs to get it down in the next few years before he turns three as well. So he needs, oh, the next few months. Oh. oh, no. <laughs> oh, look oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Luke. Chill the oh, he's been outed. Has anybody tried to stay on longer than 30? Um, I... I haven't been around that long enough to know, but yeah. it's it's not like a you know here's the door and here's yeah. the boot to get yeah. out. It's it's more of a, a mutual understanding that when you are approaching that age, then that's time to be looking at who can you be who can you be teaching to do the things that you do. Yeah, and even better, who are a couple of people that you can share those skills with, so that we always aim to organize ourselves out of our own jobs. Yes. Yeah. That's great. That's actually a really cool kind of underlying dynamic to the group then that, yeah, you constantly have to have this rotating, this this drive to bring in new people and upskill mm, them and train mm. them with that expiry date always in mind. Like, I'm yeah. sorry to, to <laughs> talk about very nice human beings like yeah. expiry date, but it's just an interesting <laughs> thing. We're all that products. Not, yeah. <laughs> I'll have our best before dates. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I've got some some other questions. I, I know you're you're new to AYCC, but you know, you're, you're the person that's here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you haven't been there for 15 years, No, it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) You have to get started very early. That's right. Yeah. So with AYCC being kind of like a training ground for high school students, young people just getting started, but also acknowledging that this is the age group that's going to feel things more Mm. than any previous generation, and then the next generation are going to feel it even more than than we are, and people who are 15 now, people who are born Mm -hmm. in 15 years are going to have it worse. Yeah, you know, the urgency is there, but there's mm. also the acknowledgement that these are people new to activism and new to community campaigning mm. and new to this thing. How do you guys try to strike a balance then between like you guys should on one hand be doing the most crazy out there in your face urgent actions ever, mm. but also you have to kind of take it easy a little bit with people and help them find their feet and get yeah, comfortable. Yeah. So how how does that kind of work? Um it works really well actually because as a youth organization we can get away with doing some, you know, different kinds of actions that are still within the, you know, we're we're a charity organization, so everything we do is within the bounds of the law, but we can push those boundaries a little bit because we're, you know, young and fresh and can kind of get away with it. And you'll only be charged as minors. <laughs> no, none of us, uh, you know, none of the actions we do uh, involve any kind of criminal behavior. Um, and that- I, I take it back completely. I'm sorry. <laughs> that itself is- like, I guess, a really safe way for a person new to activism to get exposed to activism. Um, but we're still able to harness the, you know, the, the typical creativity and uh, willingness to think outside of the box that young people bring. And by doing these, you know, things which people haven't been exposed to before, that's really exciting. And that actually does draw people in when we get it right. We got really good at this tactic called bird dogging. Have you heard of that? No. (laughs) So bird dogging is essentially follow around a person of interest, such as a politician, and try and steal their media spotlight every time that you can. And so it's kind of like prolonged photo bombing. Yeah, yeah. On video, on, you know, on all the videos. Um, Wow. 
So it's a really great way to push your message into the mainstream spotlight when the mainstream doesn't want to focus on it, which happens to be the case with climate change uh, pretty much all the time. And because we, you know, we're just young people, we're innocent. Hey, you know, we're we're not here to to make a make a fuss. We can get away with it a lot more. Uh, it's not a threatening act. No, especially if you do it in like a fish suit or something like that. Um, so we we're able to get a, a lot of airtime for climate change in the past just by like being energetic and and also the the benefit of being a young person is like. You've got you can move faster than some of the older activists <laughs> who are there. So sometimes you got to do a bit of legwork to to get these politicians and to get there on the cameras. But sometimes very literally, yeah. But it's a, it's a really cool thing to to say to like a young person that cares about climate change. Like, hey, do you want to like get on TV with the prime minister and talk about climate change there? Like, sure, it doesn't happen all the time, but there's the opportunity, and people find that exciting and exhilarating, and it's also an effective way to show that people in community care about this issue, and it pushes your narrative over the usual business-as-usual narrative that comes from politicians most of the time. So that's an example of, of where we are able to strike the balance between doing these, these actions, uh, creative actions, and making them you know, accessible for people who may never have done something like that before. And at the training program as well, we really try to ensure that people understand why taking action is necessary and how urgent it is. And the great thing about working with young people is they get it. Like it's in school curriculum. We're the first generation that's grown up learning about climate change in our classrooms. And so the baseline knowledge is there and we can just jump ahead and talk straight to how we're going to solve it and how we, you know, what's the way that we need to solve it and what are some of the more far-reaching issues beyond just the environmental impacts that you learn at school. So it gives us a lot to work with. And then when we ask people to do something, they know why it's important and they feel why it's important. That's brilliant. You've developed a lot of novel tools to deal with the crop of people you're working with. Oh, targeting that demographic. Very well. trial very trial and error because as young people, like we don't have this vast swath of, of knowledge um yeah. and years and years of experience. So base every yeah. year. <laughs> yeah. Different. So we try things and we see what sticks, uh, and we see what our volunteers like doing. And, you know, every year or so there's often like quite a big evolution in in AYCC as new volunteers come in and want to feed into that. And I think that's a really positive thing and it stops us from stagnating, which I think you can sometimes see with like really big and, and old organizations. They're like these lumbering things and it can be hard to do something new within them. You know, we're, we're smaller as AYCC. We have a much smaller segment of the population to work with than other organizations do. We're always getting fresh ideas coming through. So yeah, it keeps us on our toes. And I think, I hope that that keeps some of our targets on their toes as well. Being fossil fuel industries, fossil fuel companies, and people who prop them up. Do you guys have any sense of like? I, it's probably a weird question, actually, but um, you know, there's a lot of groups targeting fossil fuel industry, targeting politicians. Hmm. Do you ever get any sense of like if they're feeling the heat? They ever have like a a leaked memo or anything out of a politician's office? I, I know I've I've. I've heard things I'm not allowed to say mm. at, at group meetings where like, yeah, information's come out where we, where those groups, and I can't say we, I've, I've just sort of, I've been a fly on the wall Yeah. Um, where I've heard how scared politicians are of, of certain things being mm-hmm. talked about in the media of, of heat being applied. Do you guys have any sense of like how big a bogeyman you are to those groups? Yeah, I, 
And I think to be realistic, they are feeling the heat. You know, a, a fellow community organizer um, by the name of Charlie actually summed it up nicely by saying that, I guess, in reference to like the most high profile anti fossil fuel campaign on at the moment in Australia, which is the Stop Adani campaign, um, that we've been this persistent dull headache for politicians and for the fossil fuel industry, and we need to turn it into a throbbing migraine. So we know we're annoying and, and they have to keep swatting at us, but we want to kind of turn it around and be the ones swatting at them. So, mm. you know, we're there and we're noticed and we have influence, but we want to have a much, a much bigger impact than what we, than what we currently wield. And that comes with growing growing the number of people in in the community, not necessarily involved with the groups, but in the community who really feel that the work we're doing is important. Mm. Uh, because when you can get people on side, they'll do the work for you uh, and they'll become that headache for the politicians. And if it's coming from all angles, you know, you can't just pop a couple of Panadol and have it be okay. You've got to, you've got to really do something, um, change something about the, you know, the way that you are going about things to get rid of this pain. Yes, because you can get used to a dull headache. You can. I, I like that can. kind of rating system you've got. That's yeah. Good. Thank um, you, Charlie Wood. <laughs> yes, very good, Charlie. Uh, has there ever been a time where you have kind of flipped that script, or could you imagine it working where, say, maybe not Adani, because it's on such a scale that it's kind of it's unimaginable, and that's why it's such an urgent fight. But you know, say you've got a smaller regional coal mine or or some destructive land management use that's it's planned to go in. Would you ever sort of partner with a developer of like a, a sustainable energy company or a land developer whose project you could get behind and, and become like an advocacy group for something tangible? Because I, I know it's a common refrain from, you know, yeah, older people. And I, I fall my, find myself falling into it a bit like, oh, you know, campaign groups, all they want to do is say, don't do this, or this mm. is bad, this is bad. Mm. But actually say like, no, here's the project we support for these reasons, X, Y, Z, and we're just going to go out and canvas for this thing. We're going to support the mm. heck out of it. And then you might have like a sponsor on board that would have to be doing that work anyway to get the company, to get mm -hmm. the, the local population on board. You know, like, do you imagine that potentially is a workable dynamic or is there a problem in there? I don't think it's out of the question, and I think it is something that is often overlooked or, or not not overlooked but not emphasized enough. Mm. Yeah, if, if we were to find the right project and that's something that we're looking to do and that's something that we've done in the past, for example, there it, there's a town in South Australia called Port Augusta and they are to be the site of Australia's first solar thermal power plant 24/7 solar power using um heat rather than like solar panels so google it if you're listening along at home it's super cool tech and that was a campaign uh, that, that was a project that the Australian Youth Climate Coalition campaigned really hard to secure some of the government funding to get that off the ground. And they actually did a walk for solar where they got about 100 young people to walk from the site at Port Augusta all the way into Adelaide to Parliament House. And it took them about two weeks to deliver the community's support for the project. And so that was a project that we were able to fully support because it was a way to 
move beyond fossil fuels on one hand, but also it was it achieved the climate justice mission because Port Augusta was actually a coal mining town and a coal burning town. And this was a project that was supported by people who had, were coming out of the coal industry after they'd been abandoned by the mining company that was operating there. And here was a project that allowed them to use some of the skills that they had and to I guess to keep the town going and to keep that community and the workers going um, by feeding into this project. So not only was it doing something that was good for the environment, but it was doing something for this frontline community who were were feeling the worst impacts of, of what some of these fossil fuel corporations do, uh, which is just come in, extract the value, and then leave a broken community behind it. Uh, so that's why we were able to come out so strong in support of it. And where other projects like that to pop up, we'd want to get behind those, I imagine. And we'd also want to help create the climate for, excuse the language, but you know, create create that climate for projects like that to be proposed and to succeed. Uh, and this is something that myself and the group I'm working with in North Queensland is really, really interested in creating a counter narrative to coal equals jobs and we need mining in North Queensland to keep food on the table and to put a roof over our heads. We want to go out there and talk to people about how they can get those things through new technology, through renewable energy, and also be doing their part for the environment. And you know, that's that's the secondary thing for these people because North Queensland, it's a very different dynamic to where we're sitting here in Melbourne. People really do struggle with employment there. You know, some of the highest youth unemployment in the country is in North Queensland and around Townsville where I've been working. People's primary concern is is just getting their basic needs met and the environment can come afterwards. So we want to marry the two and show that Here's an industry that that we can get behind and that communities can get behind that's going to provide you jobs, it's going to provide us power, and it's going to help us remove our reliance on fossil fuels. Very good. Now, that sounds like the perfect environment for advocacy because it sounds very confronting being in a a community like that to – to someone like me who can talk a lot about, oh, well, why don't you just make some more sustainable choices? Why don't you give up little things in your Mm -hmm. life? And I I have been – it's been pointed out to me quite well that – you know, that is that is definitely speaking from a, a place of privilege where mm-hmm. you're even able to make that choice. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you were deciding between doing something sustainable and putting food on your table, it's simply human instinct to get that food and put it on your table. Absolutely. It's such an immediate problem. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm sure you and me both, we, we feel the climate threat as an imminent and, and now threat as well. Yeah. But you know, it, granted, it is, it is further away than your dining table. Mm-hmm. So granted that we are mainly speaking to a Melbourne audience with this show. It is growing, but predominantly we are listening from from Melbourne, where mm-hmm. the dynamic is quite different. Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about what it's like working up in Townsville and maybe something that, that would be quite different than our preconceptions about what it's like? And I'll preface this by saying that I, I've also been working, you know, we're just getting started there, and, and so our base in Townsville is with people who agree with this message. So again, the people that I've been most exposed to have shared a lot of my sentiments around climate change. And we haven't gotten to the stage where we're really getting out into the community and and encountering a lot of um, a lot of these challenging viewpoints. Um, for context, Townsville is where the headquarters of uh, the Adani Corporation is. And so Townsville 
is a community that feels very divided about the Stop Adani campaign because on the one side you've got people who work in the mining industry or people who know families and friends who work in the mining industry. Nearly every family there would know somebody who has lost their job through the closing down of, say, the you know, Clive Palmer's nickel refinery or through the bust cycle of the boom and bust mining industry. And so that's one side of the coin. On the other side, you've got the university, James Cook University, which is world-class for its marine sciences. So people travel from all across the world to go there and do their masters and PhDs in studying the Great Barrier Reef. And so this is a community who have the the deepest understanding of the peril facing the Great Barrier Reef in terms of coral bleaching, which is which is caused by climate change. So you have this very enlightened university group, as well as the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, um, a, a lot of different research groups which are focused on the Great Barrier Reef. You've got tourism up and down the coast connected to the reef. So you do have these two sides of the community. The mainstream media kind of stokes the fires in, in like trying to create a divide between those sides of the community and also in only showing the story of like the, the embattled North Queensland mining worker who, who's at threat of losing their job. They're really good at, at, I guess, making it seem like that's everybody in the North, but that's not the case. And there are a lot of people there who are not supportive of coal mining and know that we need to move beyond. One thing that people have in common regardless of how much they agree with continued coal mining, is that renewable energy is the way forward. Uh, and there's overwhelming support for renewable energy in North Queensland. It's, you know, Townsville is actually the sunniest city on the east coast of Australia, and people are aware of how much potential there is in solar industry. We could work with that, and we can show people that there is work and that there are jobs to be had through that industry. And if you can tell that story, then the story that we need coal mining for jobs has less power over the community. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. Like, firstly, you know, you can't just paint North Queensland and, and these coal mining towns as all being supportive of coal mining and all being supportive of Adani. And secondly, that the people who are supportive, they tend to be that way because they feel like they have no other choice. Just talking about like the, the volunteers and like the, the AYCC people working up in North Queensland. What's the, what's like the kind of mix of volunteers like up there? So we've only started a, a couple of months ago, and uh, you know I'm, I'm still just getting to know them. But it seems like we. I know it's it's hard not to you know, <laughs> no broad generalizations and stuff as well. But like yeah, yeah. Well, we've got we've got some volunteers who were born and bred in Townsville. I think you need that. I think it's yeah, really important, isn't it? Definitely, because they they know the community concerns, and that's what's going to be our base because they've lived there, and they you know they may continue to live there. Speaking with the authority of a local as well. Yeah, exactly, because they're the one one thing that North Queenslanders seem to hate the most is when people from down south try and, and the tell towners. them what they what they can and can't do. Uh, those people <laughs> down in Melbourne sitting in their <laughs> podcast studios. So I think having that that local authority is really important. And so we have some volunteers who live there and who've lived there for a while and who see the potential in turning their town into a renewable energy capital. And we also have a lot of volunteers who are coming through the university. And like I said, it's it's world class. It attracts people from all over. So we have people that are maybe only staying for like six months or 12 months. But these people are so passionate 
about protecting the Great Barrier Reef that they've travelled halfway around the world to do that. And so they really want to get involved as well, but on maybe more of a short-term basis. So that's what I've seen so far. In terms of building our long-term power, I think it's about finding out how we can get these really motivated, interested people who are only there for a short amount of time to like help feed in and support uh, what what the longer term volunteers will be there doing. But you know, this is all speculative, um, and I'm going to be continuing to work with these amazing young people up there to try and build their group into something that they want it to be and something that they're proud of being a part of. We want to show that even North Queensland is ready to move beyond coal because I think a lot of what you tend to hear is that, oh, you know, it's all well and good for us in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane to, to say shut down the coal mines, but they need the, they need that work up in the north. And that is true for now. So we need to provide additional sources of work and campaign really hard for those. That sounds really, really positive, really pragmatic. Like, sounds like you're actually on track to get something done in that community. Cause I, I like that you're, you are realistic about the facts on the ground. It's obvious you've spent time there and, and you know that, you know, those, those jobs don't have an immediate replacement right now. Mm, and, mm. you know, we, we, as you say, we can sit down here in Melbourne and Sydney and say, look, this is such an urgent thing. Why don't we just go in there and shut down the coal mines? This is terrible. Like right now, every day we're doing damage to the environment. Everything's getting worse. But that's not the way it's actually going to happen. So I'm really, mm. really grateful to you to, to share that perspective. And I think environmentalists in general were so well-meaning, but sometimes so ineffective because mm. of that idealism and yeah. sort of that, you know, we're, we're too principled sometimes. So I think, I think you're, you're on track to really get something done. And oh, thank you very much for doing that. Thank you. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing more stories from up there. I really, if there's any good way for, for me and my listeners to be able to keep sort of informed with what's going on in the campaign. Granted, I'm sick of reading email newsletters. I'm sorry if that's what you're going to say, but I'm like, subscribe to about 20 or 30 of them. Oh, and it's too much to keep I, up with. I mean, we, we acknowledge that people who subscribe to our newsletters get too many so like we don't even really want to write them yeah um so <laughs> yeah don't well, worry uh, as you know this is like with the intention of maybe getting you to to tell us some of those stories from up there so i'm just just priming the that to see if <laughs> the sequel it's yeah, in the works that's yeah. right yeah. well look i'd love to actually uh, come back with with maybe one of those local volunteers and, mm. and have them them tell their side of the story definitely or, or tell it the local pub <laughs> Easy you can come up to Townsville. Oh no, I, 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 I'd have to be, you know, driving in a, an electric train all the way up or something. <laughs> oh, I just, you don't I fly. Can't, I can't let. Oh, I, I, I haven't yet in yeah. the last, you know, six months. Uh, and this one, I've been getting serious about this and starting mm, the show. Mm. And when I, when I it's do intense. fly, I'm gonna have to, you know, do a lot of research into the offsets. And I know offsets yeah. have a lot of issues as well. I just, I'm really this. Just before you came in, I had about an hour and a half chat about sort of the philosophy of some of this stuff. And I realized I'm really, I, I don't have a, a responsibility diffuser about this stuff. I'm like, no, mm. it's doing damage. There's other stuff in my life that's doing damage as well. But but commercial air travel is like one of the single worst things you can do as a person. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the plane's still flying. I get that. But it's the industry I, that you're supporting. And, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't imagine if we carry on like this, my grandkids will have the opportunity to fly. Mm. So why why do I get to? Why yeah. do I get it and someone That's else does That's admirable, yeah. yeah. And, and it's and, one of those dissonances that, that I have as well. It's like doing this climate campaigning work and I have to 
fly relatively often for that and crossing my fingers that the work I'm doing is offsetting the emissions that I'm producing. But And you appreciate as well the need to change the system, that we as individuals can't change everything. We need to be participatory members in the society that's built around us. Mm-hmm. But I totally respect and mm-hmm. admire that you, you've, you've taken that step. Wow, it's full on. Yeah, it's a complicated thing. <laughs> um, it's always kind of interesting to bring up the topic, though, and I'm always curious to hear, because anyone working in this space has got to kind of be prepared for that question of like, so you're doing this work, but what what are you doing in your personal yeah, life and stuff? Yeah. And and flying is such a it's such an easy thing to to sort of notice mm. and and talk about. And you're mm. like, look, man, I'll run my carbon calculator, and, and for the year <laughs> I'm I'm here, and then I add a flight during the year i'm twice that yeah and it's just it's such a the single biggest act but but there's a lot of power in being places mm. and being there mm-hmm. in person i'm sure you're not keen to to drive in and out of townsville every time and then if you factor that in it's probably about the same as flying yeah. so and you know you know how uh, how hard it is sometimes to try and have conversations online Absolutely. with people that you need to build a connection with face to face so there's you know there's no replacement for being there on the ground in the community. But, you know, in terms of what I do personally, like, firstly, I do think that nothing we can do as individuals holds a candle up to the biggest companies and corporations in the world, which have put us in this position in the first place. And so if you're out there listening, I want you just to not feel too guilty about what you're doing in your personal life, because you're not the one to blame for what's going on with with climate it's you know we know the the top 100 companies that are responsible for the vast majority of pollution and we know the ceos and the board members of those companies and it's those people who who have this on their hands and they want you to think that it's you they want you to feel like you've got to take this all on yourself and you don't but all the same i think that in doing this work you, you do tend to practice what you preach and and i think it just comes with trying to live live a life which is aligned with your values. And if your values are reducing carbon, you're probably going to do that more in your everyday life. So for me, one of the biggest things was reducing animal product consumption. You know, I won't buy animal products when I grocery shop and I won't cook with animal products, but you know, I'll have them when I go to someone's house or if I go see mum and dad for dinner and I'll eat what they cook. I try and take public transport as much as possible. So I don't own a car up in Brisbane and That's something that I really love, and I think if you're wondering what you can do and what are some positive things both for the environment and for yourself, I find my time in transit so much preferable when I'm on a train or a bus than when I'm like sitting in a car because you can just kind of kick back and relax and have time to yourself. Um, As long as you don't get motion sick, I'm sorry if you do, Uh, but thankfully i'm gifted with the you know, great inner ear yeah great inner ear i get a lot of reading done um podcast listening done when i'm in transit and i appreciate those moments yeah those are i think those are the biggest things that have and i think why they've worked is they've had a positive on my life as well as a positive a perceived positive to the environment um like i feel i feel better when i eat plant-based food and you know, I get that time out at the end of a workday to just sit on a train and zone out. So I think it's about finding a balance of this values, values-led life um, where you're not like not berating yourself for stuffing up and the actions that you're making actually, the changes you're making make you feel good. I think that's really important if you want to do it sustainably and long term. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that, that's carrying on a lot of the good advice you've been getting on this show from people who 
Uh, we've had the, this last episode out this week was all about talking to a couple of sustainability consultants and sort of like who actually help people out from wherever they're at to become more sustainable. And it's all about the, the little things that work for you and, and only ever doing one thing at a time and making small changes gradually so they stick. Yeah. Yeah. Not the crash diet of sustainability. Uh. I made, yeah, I've definitely made the mistake where you try and change too many things at once. Close to this time last year, I was doing, um, I was participating in one of the AYCC campaigns called For the Love of the Reef, where you're meant to give up, you know, give up something that you love in order to raise awareness and raise funds for climate action. That sounds quite Catholic in a way. <laughs> Repent and, and sacrifice. Yeah. Well, the, the cool, uh, twist to it was like, you're encouraged to give something up that is, already impacted by climate and yes. use that as an awareness raiser so like things like chocolate, chocolate yeah. coffee yeah tequila. these kinds of things <laughs> well tequila um since we work in schools alcohol used to be one of the th- beer used to be one of the things we encourage people to give up but our school's work has grown so we've taken that off the list and Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> replaced it with avocado Ooh. speaks to our youth audience um Ooh, that one's tough yeah well i actually started the whole plant-based diet thing taking that seriously, doing for the love of the reef last year. But I also was like, oh, I'll raise more money if I give up even more things. So I gave up alcohol and I gave up coffee and I tried to adopt a plant-based diet. And it was a hellish two weeks. And I think I would have raised just as much money if I'd just given up coffee. (laughs) But do what you can, do it within reason. If you feel like making a change, though, now's the perfect time. The For the Love of the Reef challenge is actually kicking off probably by the time this podcast gets out. So check it out if you want to want to take part in an AYCC campaign and want to tie that in with a, a change that you've been thinking about making and, and use this as like a challenge that you can set for yourself and, and raise awareness for a good cause as well. That's fantastic. Can you, can you give us the dates on that? Yeah, so it's from August the 27th till September the 9th. I hope that adds up to two weeks. It's supposed to be a two-week period that you give something up. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> I just kept on with the um, the vegan cooking thing. Yeah, and... Very, so that's, that's stuck after the challenge? Yeah, that's stuck. The coffee and alcohol did not. Um, in, in fact, if anything, they've, <laughs> they're on the up. <laughs> You're doing hard work up there. <laughs> so end of August uh, into the start of September, that's when all around the country... Thousands of people will be taking the challenge at the same time and, and going through, uh, you know, all the withdrawals collectively. And between now and then, it's it's kind of like telling people that you're doing it and getting people to pledge to chip in a few dollars to sponsor you, that kind of thing. So it's a really like, I, I guess this is this is the side of Australian Youth Climate Coalition where it's like where we're reaching out to people that have never done something before and bringing them in. It's like a fairly innocuous thing to just talk about, you know, coffee. And and that's something trivial, that the fact that your coffee is going to cost more because less trivial, half of the world's coffee plantations are threatened by climate. And a lot of, you know, thousands, millions of people rely on those for their livelihoods. But for us in the city, it's a triviality. But that's how you need to start these conversations sometimes. Like, you don't want to just jump right in and, and go all doomsday you know the impending apocalypse you, you just you just slide in casually with the like oh you know you, you like coffee huh that's something that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna be impacted by climate change as well and it's just like a way to connect it with something small in a person's life so that they pay more attention to the bigger mm-hmm. things and they're more receptive to those bigger messages so this is like it, it's a really effective recruitment 
tool for us because high school students, like for them, it's a really easy thing to talk about. And those are the people that we really want to be drawing in. We want high school students to join and to start being aware and taking action and continuing to take action. Um, but we need a hook first. And, um, this campaign works really well for, for that. Over the reef is that? That's great. So, like, I, I grew up with like the forty-hour famine in New Zealand, yeah. and, uh, World Vision, yeah. World Hungry campaign, and I, I, that kind of thing. I think, yeah, it, it does work beautifully. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll jump in. I'll, oh. I'll do something. And awesome. I'll send good. you the I'll link. Have, after I'll have to this. find something to give up. But, uh, that's <laughs> you, yeah, you've, you've already done flying. That's pretty extreme. <laughs> what left have you got? <laughs> I, I could really stand to cut down on the amount of plastic packaging I've got. That's, oh, that's my big white elephant. That is a good one. Quite a, yeah, quite ashamed of it actually. Yeah, but at well. least you know the, the rubbish is being uh, sorted, and at least Melbourne City Council we're not a. Uh, we're not putting it into landfill. So okay. There's so many things to be aware of with these days. But, um, yeah, I know. But, but Nick, thank you so much for your, your candor and sort of just, you know, letting us know what it's like working on one of these campaigns in Townsville and what the dynamic is like up there. And I think these are all, these are the kind of things you don't get to hear unless you have the chance to have a conversation with somebody mm. doing the work like yourself. So thank you very much for that. Is You're there welcome. any any final words or anything you've got? Just just because we discussed climate justice, I just want to give a shout out to Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, who we work alongside, and um, they're also part of the For the Love of the Reef campaign. But First Australians, not only feeling the worst impacts of climate change here in Australia, but in enduring the worst exploitation from the companies that are causing it. And I think it's really important that we always consider that fixing climate change isn't enough. We need to fix the systematic injustices which have led to climate change. And, and in Australia, that, that starts with what's happened to, to First Australians in this country. So whenever you have the opportunity, if you're not a First Australian yourself, you know, working in the climate space to try and include and privilege people that come from that background because they need to be at the, you know, the forefront of this this struggle as well. And indeed they are, and they have been. They've been fighting oppression for hundreds of years after living sustainably for tens of thousands of years on this land. So you check them out, seedmob.org.au, um, do some awesome work. And hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you've already heard of them um, in Melbourne here, but if not, definitely, uh, definitely check them out. Definitely worth your time and attention. That's great. Thank you so much for that, Nick. I hope you uh, travel safe back up to Townsville. And, oh, uh, thanks. I won't be back for a while. I do live in Brisbane. I'm I'm one of the Southerners there <laughs> as well. Got to be and careful. And they haven't run you out of town yet. <laughs> no, they don't know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But that that's that's why it's like so important that we get the local volunteers on board, and they're the ones. I want to make sure I'm standing behind them, and they're the ones that are out there talking and doing the work that they want to do. But uh, yeah, back up to Brisbane soon. Escape this uh, this. This winter, which I've been deprived of all this time. You, know. you can take it with you. <laughs> I miss it. I don't like sweating in June, but, but this is what I was subjected to up in the north. So thank you so, yeah, thank you so much for having me on here. Absolute pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Some really wonderful points in that discussion, Mark, but I'm really interested in finding out what stood out for you. Well, it's funny for me, Rich. You know, here I am. I've just gotten back from a volunteering weekend. It's my, mm. my first time actually being involved in a group that's somewhat similar to AYCC, actually going out and taking action as a volunteer for something I believe in. Yeah. And it's through this experience I've had this weekend that I'm able to draw connections between a lot of the things that Nick was talking about. So I was interested 
initially in kind of the the abstract idea of a volunteer organization fit where a facilitator somebody like Nick kind of, kind of sits there in the middle as the the translator between the volunteers and the groups mm. but I saw from my experience this weekend having somebody leading the group like Andy at the Regent Honey Eater Project that that as long as that person is pretty much an embodiment of the the group's ideals and you get along with that person you have such a sense of shared purpose with that yes. group. Mm. It really surprised me how much how much work I put in over the weekend, and, and my muscles are feeling it today. Mm. You know, here I am doing work for free, but I feel so happy about it, and I'm so eager to give it, and I get such a, a sense of accomplishment that's beyond most of the work I've ever done. So I think what I talked about with Nick about volunteers and, and trying to get a good fit between them and the organization, I think... Mm. It's a lot more simple than I was trying to make it. So if you are interested in, in volunteering for a group, just go along for the day. And if you have a good fit with the, the people around you, especially the, the leader of the group, because, mm-hmm. hey, volunteers can come and go. So, yeah. you know, don't be thrown off. If you went along to a day, you're volunteering with somebody, you get along with them great, but then you come along next time and they're not there. Hey, life can get in the way. And the group is really going to benefit from you sticking around and, and putting in some serious time with that. Because it's that longevity of involvement that gives you expertise and experience that you can then start sharing with other volunteers and really start to to ramp up the group's efforts and their their viability, really. So I was especially interested with AYCC with that 30-year limit they place on the the age of their members. I think it it makes a lot of sense, but it does produce some really interesting challenges to the group. Hmm. So I I was especially fascinated by hearing how they, they manage that that challenge. And how about you, Rich? Yeah, totally agree with what you say, Mark. It would be unfair, I think, to call AYCC an academy, but they do make sure that their members are fully trained by the time they reach 30 and then go on to other environmental groups. I was really impressed with your interview with with Nick Carter, with both of you. There was one phrase that really stood out for me, and that was food on the table. It sounds a little odd, just one phrase stands out for me, but it was in regard to people who would get jobs in the Adani mine. If I can just say there quickly, Rich, for the mm. sake of, of overseas listeners, that the Adani mine and the Carmichael Basin in, in northern Queensland is potentially one of the largest coal mines in the world if it were to go ahead. And it, it has been one of the, the single biggest topics that's really brought together a lot of the environmental groups in Australia to oppose one specific thing, being this sort of unprecedented in size coal mine. Yeah, thank you, Mark. The, the way Nick approached the problem was not to say that people who perhaps would rely on Adani mine for jobs are wrong and need to be ostracised. Not at all. He said, look, these people need to put food on the table, as the quote went. And it did remind me of Paul Hawken. Now, Paul Hawken is the instigator and editor of Drawdown. And it's a magnificent book. It's one of those books that comes along once every 10 years or so. And it talks about the, the things that can be done to mitigate against climate change. And he talks about reversing climate change. It's a very positive book. But Paul Hawkins' ideals are the same as Nick's, that he doesn't denigrate people for what they believe in, whether they're coal miners, they've been contributing to a country's GDP for so many years. And it's, it's and to, to suddenly say that you're all wrong, you have to stop. It is a little bit hard for those people. And Paul Hawkins and Nick Carter seem to share that, that same point of view. Do you agree with that, Mark? Yeah, I, I completely agree, Rich. I think Nick was a great representative of not only the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, AYCC, but 
what young people in Australia are really like who are getting out and doing this work. And and Nick would say to himself, he's in a, in a lucky position being able to, to make a living doing this kind of work. Mm. You know, like, you know, you're leading volunteers and, and they're all out there giving their time and you've got the ability to, to do that as your job, yeah. which I think really gets embodied by Nick in, in this sense of, of humility and this sense of just clarity of purpose. He's there to make sure that that volunteers can do the most they can, which lets them feel as good as they can as well on the most pressing topic facing all of us. And he's completely right that it is youth now and it's the youth of the future are going to feel climate change more than than you or I, Rich. Mm. So um, there's nothing really more important than than that particular group having a sense of ownership over the direction the world's heading because at the end of the day, it's going to be their world. Mm. Very quickly, what you said about Drawdown, I completely agree. I, I still have yet to get the book. I will freely admit that. But there is a wealth of amazing YouTube videos out there about it. Rather than having to leave it to you to go hunt them all up, uh, there will be a playlist I'll put together on the Climactic YouTube channel as well, mm. where I'll collect some of the best ones from around the web and put them all in one place for you. Just finally, Mark, congratulations to you. That was a very good interview, the way you drew out the questions from Nick was fantastic. Okay now, and to some credits. And we would like to thank a few people without which this show would not be possible. Thank you to our producer, Caleb Fidicaro, for our fantastic theme music, producer Greg Grassi, our designer, Abigail Hawkins, and our senior advisor, Gretchen Miller. And special thanks to Nick Carter for being such a great guest. Uh, he was a real open book, and, and he'd never met me before sitting down for that interview, so he did a fantastic job. If you'd like to check out the project that AYCC is running, their big annual fundraiser, uh, it's called For the Love of the Reef, and there will be a link in the show notes just below. Full contacts for Nick and all of our technical team are also in the show notes. And thanks for listening, folks. Next week, we'll feature Lee Baker. And she's the founder of Balance 3 and a leading thinker and advocate for regenerative business practices in both new and existing industries. Now, I'm really looking forward to this because it was Lee who put me on to Drawdown by Paul Hawken, and this seems to be a running theme, Mark. It absolutely is. Since uh, Lee talked to me about Drawdown as well a few months ago, it's been a, a theme running through all of my thinking about this, and Drawdown just seems like this this thing that's just behind everything. Mm. It's, just, it's always just sitting there waiting to be fully tapped into this catalog of ideas and options and practical tools for how we're going to save the world. So I think after Lee's interview next week, we'll be addressing Drawdown a lot more directly going forward. Mm -hmm. Just to give you a little sample of what next week is going to be like with Lee, one of her favorite quotes, and she's told this to me a few times now, is one from Buckminster Fuller, and it goes, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Now, that's a magnificent quote, Mark, and uh, I'm just paraphrasing here, but it's like Einstein's quote about you can't solve a problem uh, within the paradigm that you created it. You've got to think outside the square. That's it, exactly. So look forward to some definitely out-of-the-box thinking with Lee next week. And until then, have have a great one, everybody. The Climactic Collective. Collective.